Hello and welcome to the Folklore Podcast. I'm Mark Norman, folklore researcher and author. As I record this, we're over a month into the lockdown of the United Kingdom in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Here on the podcast, we are trying hard to keep as much material coming out as we can to keep the rest of you entertained, both regular episodes, although they can be more challenging at the moment, and bonus content. Responses so far have been very good, so I'm happy that you're enjoying what we're doing. Do please comment on our Facebook or Twitter, or email us with your thoughts. It is especially good to hear from you at this time. There is still content held back for release over the next couple of months, and I am trying to plan more to follow that at the moment, alongside working from home and the challenges of homeschooling. If you'd like to support the podcast and help to keep it going, please do consider signing up for a small monthly donation on Patreon. Even a dollar a month really helps when added to everyone else's. And there is additional content being added there for you each month too, at every level of support. Thank you. And if you can't do that, please do share our posts and content and keep the visibility high to bring in more listeners. Today on the podcast... As we've just passed Walpurgis Night, I'm releasing from my archives a public lecture given at the Folklore Society in 2017 by Professor Ronald Hutton. Many of you, I'm sure, know of Professor Hutton's work or have at least one of his books. He is one of the most well-known and respected historians today, working in the fields of pagan and magical study, and is Professor of History at Bristol University, as well as being a Fellow of the British Academy. Now, this talk was written and presented just before the release of Professor Hutton's book, The Witch. In it, he looks at the subject of witches and the wild hunt, and examines the ideas that the hunt might be a remnant of European shamanism, arguing that it is more likely a conflagration of a number of sources. But I'll let Ronald explain for himself in his talk, delivered to a packed house in London in March 2017. Let me start by defining what the wild hunt is commonly supposed to be by historians. There have been some older definitions of it by folklorists, including distinguished members of this society, like Catherine Briggs. But for my own purposes, those made by historians since the century began are of the most importance. And the most succinct is probably provided by Michael Bailey, a leading American expert in the history of magic and witchcraft. And it's this. In German and Celtic legend, the wild hunt consisted of a band of ghosts or spirits who would ride through the night. The hunt was usually led by a divine or semi-divine figure, either female, called Holder or Berta, or male, often called Herm the Hunter. In Christian Europe during the Middle Ages, Authorities often transform the female leader of the wild hunt into the classical goddess Diana. In addition, the belief developed that groups of women, instead of the spirits of the dead, would ride with Diana. This belief was an important basis for the later notions of night flight and the witch's sabbath. The idea that the wild hunt underlies the stereotype of the sabbath has been put forward most strongly by Carlo Ginzburg, one of the greatest Italian historians and arguably, and I would argue, one of the greatest in the world. 
followed by Ava Cooks in Hungary, Gustav Henningsen in Denmark, and Wolfgang Beringer in Germany. They disagree among themselves, however, over the extent to which the idea of the hunt derives from an ancient pan-Eurasian cultural substratum of shamanism, as Ginsberg has argued. Moreover, Michael Bailey himself and a member of this society, Wilhelm de Blecourt, have both suggested that folkloric traditions of night flight were less important to the construction of the stereotype of the witch's Sabbath than those other scholars have proposed. Nobody, however, seems to have questioned the concept of the wild hunt itself, as repeated by Bailey. In putting their arguments concerning the origin of early modern witchcraft beliefs, both Ginsberg and Pox made use of it. They identified it confidently as a night ride of prematurely dead humans led by a fertility goddess and derived from an ancient shamanistic cult of the dead as givers of new life. And this idea was repeated in 2011 by the French academic Claude Lecouteur in the latest full-length study of The Legend of the Hunt. And what I'd like to do this afternoon is question this composite figure in every respect and deconstruct the component parts of the picture of the wild hunt. Those parts were put together in their modern form from 1835 onwards by the great German folklorist Jakob Grimm, as in Grimm's fairy tales, as part of his project with his brother of constructing a universal German mythology around which a German nation could unite. He did so by piecing together different traditions of modern German and Scandinavian folk belief and adding information from medieval and early modern texts. This process involved both the removal of discrepancies between them and the assumption that as a body of evidence they're all descended directly from the ancient world. Uh, this exercise depended on two major premises of 19th century scholarship, which have long been abandoned by experts in folklore and mythology. One was that extant variants of a myth or legend represented fragments of an original ancestral Ur belief, which could be reconstructed by combining and harmonising the variants. And the other was that modern commoners, especially rural commoners, blindly repeated received tradition without either comprehending or altering it. As such, their beliefs and rites represented living fossils, relics of a prehistoric world which those beliefs and rites could be used to reconstruct. Now, the key issue here is that although both those ideas have been jettisoned by folklorists at least since the 1970s, both of them are alive and well among leading historians of the early modern witch trials. Ginsberg, Pokes and Beringer have all used modern folklore, wholesale, to fill up the gaps in medieval and early modern evidence. All of them, plus Bailey and Le Couteur, have assumed that medieval and early modern traditions regarding nocturnal spirit processions must derive directly from ancient paganism. 
I'd like now to submit both assumptions to closer investigation, re-examining the medieval and early modern evidence without recourse to modern folklore, but with a more informed and focused comparison of ancient paganism. The first result of this policy is to get rid of the name, the Wild Hunt. It was coined by Grimm as De Ville de Jagd by incorporating modern legends of spectral huntsmen into his already large corporate construction of a ghostly army of the dead led by goddess and god. Before 1600, we find legends of three different kinds of individual hostly hunter. Number one is a demon hunting sinners. Number two is a sinful human huntsman doomed to carry on hunting for centuries as a punishment. And number three is a supernatural figure chasing supernatural game. None of these ever has a retinue of the living or the dead, and so is not part of what the wild hunt was later taken to be. And thanks to another member of this august society, Jeremy Hart, we can also get rid of Herm the Hunter from our quest. Grimm proposed him as the pagan British god who led the hunt, purely because of his name. In fact, as Jeremy has shown, he first appears in Shakespeare, who may have invented him, as a solitary ghost. He doesn't lead a cavalcade of spirits, and there is no evidence that he was an ancient deity. When he examined the medieval roots of Grimm's composite, it becomes clear that there are two very different traditions of nocturnal spirit hosts combined in it. One consists of an army of the roaming penitential dead, which is presumed to have a male leader. The other is the retinue of a supernatural female figure made up of spirits and or living human beings who joined it on special nights. By Grimm's time, the two actually were sometimes combined in folklore, but before 1500, they almost never overlap. It's time to consider each and its putative ancient origins in turn, starting with the processions of the dead. Ancient Greek and Roman literature provides ample testimony that the peoples of the ancient Mediterranean often regarded the night as a creepy place, the haunt of witches, ghosts, and evil spirits. What is missing in it is any clear reference to companies of the dead roaming the earth, or indeed to bands of anything supernatural roaming the night. Phantom armies sometimes feature, but they don't roam. They generally haunt the battlefields on which they died. There is an almost complete lack of contemporary source material from Northern Europe, that's ancient Northern Europe, and attempts to find spirit processions there depend on back projections from medieval literature or modern folklore. Early medieval Christianity added hordes of demons to the other terrors of the night, but a tradition of stable companies of the dead travelling the earth only started in the 11th century. It was part of a new intensity of interest in the fate of the individual Christian soul. Accounts of ghosts in general become more frequent and detailed 
at that time, the 11th century. And the dead are much more often represented as gathering. In particular, stories are now regularly told of crowds of dead people doomed to roam the earth as a penance for their sins. In the 1120s and 1130s, a set of French and German texts focused on travelling hosts of dead sinners, usually knights, and usually seeking the prayers of the living to gain their release, become a genre in monastic writing. By the late 12th century, this is established as a broader literary trope from England to Germany. The hosts concerned were those of a leader called Herla, Herlekin, Herlewin or Vin, and Heliquin, but he almost never appears in them. Indeed, only one story actually features this leader, and that's an isolated English one invented to explain the name. And there's no agreement among linguists concerning the name's actual origin, nor did those who told the stories seem to know where the stories had started. There is no evidence for an ancient model behind them. Rather, they show every sign of being exemplary tales created about sinners and penitents by churchmen. By the 13th century, the procession of wandering dead had spread into Spain and across the German-speaking lands, acquiring there the endearing local name of Das Wutende Heer, the Furious Army. It had also got into popular culture, and some churchmen were starting to believe it had originated there and had been diabolically inspired. In places, heroes from other traditions were being brought into it, notably King Arthur and his knights. Little new development occurred in the myth during the rest of the Middle Ages. It was known from England to Austria, and attitudes varied from regarding the apparitions as a divinely legitimised procession of penitential dead, to viewing them as an evil and demonic host designed to lead humans astray. By the 16th century, its range was dramatically contracting, as it was no longer mentioned in England and was increasingly rare in France. Its enduring stronghold was the German lands, where it remained a live tradition till the 19th century, when Grimm picked it up. The wandering dead never seemed to have been a factor in witch trials, except in the rare instances confined to some alpine regions, in which they eventually got mixed up with the parallel tradition of that of the superhuman lady, and to that we must now turn. It was established long before that of the roaming bands of dead, being recorded first a good 200 years before, in the 9th century, when it was already described as very popular. This was in one of the most famous texts for the history of popular belief in medieval Europe, the Canon Episcopi, which denounced the belief of many women that they rode upon animals across the world on particular nights as followers of the pagan goddess Diana. The canon rejected this as a satanically inspired delusion and ordered priests to preach against it. By doing so, it suggested that they would drive workers of magic from their parishes, 
which implies that the women who claimed to ride with Diana were local providers of magical services. Cunning folk in English parlance. The text was repeated and amplified in successive collections of canon law over the next 300 years, with the addition of the name Herodias to that of Diana as the leader of the rites. Although none of these prescriptions specified a region for the belief, it was never recorded in this early medieval period by churchmen living south of the Alps. Those who repeated it were all based in the Rhineland, or came from that area, and it seems at this time to have been a feature of the Frankish lands that were later France and Germany, and perhaps only parts of those. During the rest of the Middle Ages, it continued to attract denunciations from clerics in the same area, while spreading across the whole of the French and German-speaking lands and into northern Italy and Spain. Diana and Herodias remained the favourite names for the superhuman leader among churchmen, but others appear in popular tendency, such as Bensosia, Satia, Sacria, and Abundia. In Italy, she was sometimes Sibylla, while in central Germany, she was Holla or Holda, and in the southern German-speaking lands, Berta or Pecht. Quite commonly, however, and especially in Italy, she was simply the lady, or the good lady, and her retinue the good ladies, the blessed ladies, or the ladies of the night. What she and her followers generally did was to visit the houses of favoured humans, usually the better behaved and cleaner in a community, and bless them with good fortune. Her retinue often feasted there, but what they ate and drank was, most conveniently, miraculously restored as they departed. Sometimes they held a revel of their own in some rural place, which is why in Italy the ladies' court was often known as the good game. What she and, well, sorry, three aspects of this tradition seem to be more or less constant. First, that it's a belief of commoners, and especially of relatively poor women, sometimes including men of the same class. The claim to take part in the expeditions gave them a status which normally they would not have possessed. Furthermore, the nature of the activities in which they said that they took part represented a classical piece of wish fulfilment of the poor to become favoured members of a supernatural royal court and visit the houses of others to feast to their heart's content. Second, the late medieval sources make explicit what the canon episcopi implied, that the women who came to claim to rove with the lady were often or mostly the folk magicians of their communities. They were those who offered to heal, break bewitchments, find stolen or lost goods, and foretell the future using spells or charmed. They claimed indeed to have gained such powers from the lady or ladies as a result of communicating with them. This would fit a pattern found in other parts of Europe, and indeed worldwide, whereby popular magicians were believed to be granted their powers by spirits with whom they communed. 
The third common feature of the tradition of the knights roving lady and ladies was that there nowhere seems to have been any actual group activity involved. The travels of the humans who claimed to join these female phantasms were experienced in their minds while their bodies remained static. By the early modern period, the tradition was contracting in its range, like that of the roaming dead, and also breaking into more clearly defined regional forms. It had disappeared from most French-speaking areas, and there is no solid evidence that it had ever reached Britain. There is a similar popular belief found in early modern Scotland that the fairies, led by their queen, and usually by their king as well, trooped around at night, these two favoured people, and especially folk magicians, who were thought to join them. The existence of this Scottish tradition was a major prop of Carlo Ginsberg's argument in favour of a pan-European shamanistic substratum to medieval and early modern ideas of nocturnal spirit processions, <coughs> if it's found in Central and Western Europe, but also in Scotland, it's a stronger argument that there is something universal and ancient underlying them. I'm more inclined myself to think that it's an independent regional development of the Middle Ages, but that's a debate for another occasion. In its continental heartland, the original concept of the travels with the lady or ladies took three distinctive local forms by the late 16th century. In the German lands north of the Alps, the lady went around at night with her retinue, but human beings were no longer thought to join it. That is why, despite the intensity of early modern witch hunting in that region, the nocturnal processions of females don't seem to feature in witch trials there. In two widely separated areas, the German-speaking parts of the Alps and Catalonia Good spirits were thought to go around by night and living humans to be able to join them. Those spirits seem, however, to have had no leading figure. And in those regions, they occasionally feature in witch trial records. The most spectacular and celebrated case is that of the herdsman, healer and witch hunter from the Vorarlberg, who claimed to travel with an angel and the people of the night and has been immortalised by Wolfgang Deringer as the shaman of Oberstdorf. In the Italian Alps and the plain of Lombardy, the good game had a semi-divine female leader, and humans were regarded as being able to take part in it. Many, in fact, claimed to do so, which is why, in this, why this tradition features more often in witch trials in this area than in any other. Participation in the doings of the lady also became, to an extent, stereotypical of witchcraft here, featuring prominently, for example, in some North Italian demonologies. The third region had a detached province in Sicily, which manifested the same tradition of nocturnal female spirits travelling with a leader, as in the north, but apparently with no sign of it in the expanse of central and southern Italy between. The Sicilian branch of the Spanish Inquisition regularly put women on trial for making these claims, and then practising magic for paying clients, 
which is why we know a lot about their beliefs. It prosecuted them for superstition, however, and not for satanic witchcraft, which is why it seems to have sentenced none to death. So where, then, did this idea come from? The obvious answer, which is the one which has always been made, is that it derives directly from ancient paganism and from the cult of a pre-Christian goddess. This remains entirely possible and is the most economical explanation. It seems, however, very hard to prove. The names given to the superhuman leader by churchmen from the 9th to the 16th centuries were Diana and Herodias. There are certainly references in clerical sources to a continuing cult of Diana across a wide expanse of France and Germany in the early Middle Ages. Moreover, she would at first sight be a good contender for the Lady of the Night Rides, being a goddess especially associated with the night, wild animals and witches. Unfortunately, she was also a Roman deity who could not have been honoured in the central German lands where she became associated with the medieval tradition. And there isn't even evidence for a widespread and local ancient cult of Diana in the Roman lands north of the Alps. Nor does any ancient myth of her portray her as sweeping up human followers like the medieval lady. Carlo Ginsberg noted that in specific late medieval trials of her alleged followers, they tended to give her other names, while it was the churchman trying the cases who called her Diana. He argues that throughout the tradition of the night rides, the name Diana was imposed on her by churchmen educated in ancient Roman literature. Actually, there might be, in addition, a much simpler reason why Diana was the name they chose, that it's the only name of a pagan goddess found in the New Testament, great as Diana of the Ephesians, and indeed it's the only European <coughs> goddess found in the entire Bible. Nonetheless, Ginsberg has also proposed that the other commonly used name, Herodias, does derive from that of a pagan goddess who might have had a cult which gave rise to the medieval tradition. He suggested that her original name was Hera Diana. There are some problems with this. For one thing, no inscriptions to a deity called Hera Diana are found anywhere in the ancient world. The name twins are Greek with a Roman goddess of very different sort in a most unlikely way. There's no more evidence for a widespread cult of the Greek Hera north of the Alps than for that of the Roman Diana. All of the arguments that Ginsberg presents for the imposition of the name Diana by churchmen could apply to that of Herodias. Indeed, they have an obvious linkage, that just as Diana is the only goddess in the New Testament, so Herodias is the wickedest woman in it. Moreover, some at least of the people who spoke of the Herodias of the Night Rides definitely thought that she was the woman from the Bible. By the 12th century, a legend had been developed to explain how that biblical character had ended up roaming by night and attracting followers. It sounds in context like a genuinely popular tradition by them, in which case whether or not the name was originally imposed on a night-roving spirit by clerics, it may have been taken up by the common people. But all this still leaves us with the problem of finding a goddess 
or set of goddesses, honoured across a wide swathe of what is now France and Germany, who might have retained sufficient loyalty to generate the medieval myth. Claude Lecouteur proposed the Greek Hecate. She was associated with the night, witchcraft and the dead, and roamed between different parts of the cosmos. She was also certainly known to the Romans. However, leaving aside the problem of whether Hecate ever had a popular cult north of the Alps, she was never portrayed as the leader of a retinue of earthbound spirits, or indeed any sort of entourage except one of dogs. She conducted individual souls to the underworld. Ginsberg proposed instead two other contenders, both of whom undoubtedly enjoyed huge popularity under the Roman Empire, with an epicentre in just the right place, the Rhineland, for the appearance of the medieval myth. One was Epona, goddess of horses and patroness of their welfare and fertility. This certainly made her popular with riders, especially the Roman cavalry units. On the other hand, she was never shown with a retinue of any kind, while the medieval rides were never on horses, but on wild beasts. The other popular ancient cult from the right area is that of the Martres or Matrones, Matroni, the mothers or ladies. They were portrayed as three stately women, standing, or more usually seated, in a row, and often holding symbols of prosperity and joy, such as bread, fruit, and flowers. As such, they could make plausible originals for benevolent female superhumans who might visit and bless houses at night. But there are problems. The martres are never shown with a retinue or in motion. They were never associated with animals, and the medieval ladies never travelled in trios. There is therefore no goddess or set of goddesses attested in the whole of the archaeological and textual record which makes a good fit with the medieval ladies. There remains a possibility that a pagan Germanic cult from outside the empire, and so outside of iconographic or epigraphic ancient evidence, lay behind these ladies. Grimm himself proposed that the medieval German names for the leader of the nocturnal journeys, Holder or Holler, and Percht or Bertha, were those of native goddesses. He was uneasily aware that Percht is not recorded before the 14th century, but disregarded this on the grounds that she seemed so obviously pagan a figure. On the face of things, a Germanic origin for the medieval myth seems a little unlikely, given that so much of its recorded range was within the former Roman Empire. The most thoroughly Germanic lands further north did not manifest the medieval myth. There is also a linguistic challenge to Grimm's assertion. In its earliest appearance in the 11th century, the name Holder is generally not used of the leader of the rides, but of the rides themselves. The name Holder or Holler, therefore as a, a human or superhuman figure, therefore seems like a personification of them. As for Pecht, a plausible argument 
has recently been made that her name derives from the medieval German one for the Christian feast of the Epiphany. As that was the time when she was portrayed as most active, she may indeed have originated as a personification of that feast. This would fit a general medieval pattern of personifying festivals, usually in female form. From Grimm to Le Couteur, scholars who try to reconstruct ancient Germanic mythology have usually used medieval Norse literature to plug the many gaps in the German record. This did have references to nocturnal revels of trolls and other non-human beings to which human magicians could fly in spirit. These revels were not, however, mainly female, and they had no identifiable leader. Norse literature also had superhuman females called Valkyries, famously, or Desia, who rode through the air alone or in troops. None of these, however, rode at night behind a leader and invited selected humans to join them. Grimm made the Norse god Odin, the German Wotan, the male leader of his wild hunt. But in the medieval literature, Odin's a solitary traveller, who's only associated in one text with the night revels of spirits, and there he disrupts them as things he hates with overt hostility. It may therefore be suggested that there is no clear pagan progenitor for the lady of the medieval myth. It's entirely possible that the latter was assembled from aspects of a variety of different ancient cults, but this would still make it a medieval creation. There's even a slight possibility, which I don't myself much favour, that the original inspiration for the myth was originally Christian, uh, actually Christian, and that it was adapted from the legend of a female saint who visited houses to bless them. Possible, but I suggest not probable. It may be helpful in this context to pay closer attention to the attitudes of both medieval commoners and medieval churchmen with regard to the myth, rather than assuming too readily that its character as a survival from paganism somehow explains everything about it. When you examine the names which the, with which the text credit common people themselves as giving to the lady, they embody the same bundle of qualities, abundance, generosity, opulence, the power of divination, and above all, general goodness as a patroness and companion. Those may be taken as marking her out in the 19th century manner as a fertility goddess, but they also just make her a perfect helper, provider and teacher for poor and hungry commoners above all women. Whatever its origin, the tradition was patently a long-lived, widespread and tenacious one, which genuinely represented what may be termed a counterculture of wish-fulfilment, personal space and the acquisition of prestige for poor commoners. As for the churchmen who condemned it, they remained for most of the Middle Ages convinced that it wasn't a serious danger to Christianity. Not until the end of the period when it became mixed up with the new stereotype of the demonic witch did this attitude change. These same churchmen 
were perfectly aware of what heresy was, and also what actual paganism was, and didn't seem to put the travels with the lady in either category. They classified them instead with relatively harmless superstition and delusion, to be punished with a relatively light penance. In viewing those who propagated belief in it as people who are otherwise orthodox Christians, with a single deluded idea which wasn't of great concern to the church, they seem to have been correct, as far as the evidence goes. It's still worth asking, however, what was actually going on? What were people who claimed to be following the lady or ladies at night actually doing? Some were simply liars or fantasists. Some of the women accused of saying they went out with the ladies from outside in Sicily admitted they were making it up to impress clients. One actually went through a pantomime of admitting the invisible ladies to a customer's house, announcing that only she could see them. Another viable explanation is that people were dreaming of going on the rides while asleep. The famous churchman Nicholas of Cusa interrogated two old women in South Tyrol in 1457 who confessed to following a Dame Maricella at night. He decided they were just taking for reality what they experienced in dream. Neither explanation has, however, been given much attention by recent historians of the phenomenon, such as Ginsberg and Beringer, who have tended instead to emphasise trance as the experience which gave people the impression of leaving their bodies. This, of course, makes much easier the equation of those people by both historians with Siberian shamans who went into altered states of consciousness in order to communicate with spirits and fly with them in spirit form. They did so in dramatic public performances of chanting, drumming and dancing. This equation has three problems with it. The first is that none of these Europeans enacted public performances like Siberian shamans. The second is we don't have a single eyewitness account of one of them entering such a trance to travel with the lady. The third is the term trance is about as vague as that of shaman or shamanism. It can, can cover a range of different states such as reverie, dementia, delusion, hallucination and possession. The data aren't good enough in this case for us to distinguish them. Nonetheless, it does seem as if some of the people concerned were entering altered states of consciousness to judge from the descriptions they gave to magistrates or inquisitors. Whether or not these added up to an ecstatic cult, as Ginsberg suggests, still seems to remain an open question. Finally, it's worth asking what the night rides in fact did contribute to the development of the early modern stereotype of the witch's Sabbath. There is no doubt that this stereotype was formed in the Western Alps in the early 15th century, a region and time which contained the tradition of the rides. Carlo Ginsberg has argued famously that the one led directly to the other. He has been supported by Eva Pox, Gustav Henningsen and Wolfgang Beringer. The contributions of the last three scholars, however, show that folk beliefs contributed elements to witch trials 
which is not quite the same thing as saying the belief in the night rides with the lady underlay the whole stereotype of the witch's Sabbath. In other words, there's no doubt whatsoever that folkloric elements appear in many local trials, especially in certain Europe, regions of Europe, such as those studied by the scholars just named. But we do have to face the Ginsberg thesis that the night rides underlie the whole composite idea which became the witch's Sabbath, or Sabbath, and underlies the great early modern witch trials. This hypothesis has recently been challenged by Michael Bailey, Kathleen Utztremp, and Stephen Maroney. They've drawn on the earlier hypothesis of Norman Cohn, that official attitudes to heresy, developing through the late Middle Ages, were essential in forming the stereotype. They view the element in it of witches flying to the Sabbath, which Ginsberg saw as crucial, as a marginal one. It's now much easier than before to reach conclusion on this issue, because the Lausanne cluster of researchers, which included Tremp, have edited and published all the recent sources. They reveal that Ginsberg was correct, that flight to the Sabbath was an important feature in its early construction. On the other hand, his critics are correct in that it wasn't as important or omnipresent as the features derived from the older medieval stereotypes of heresy. More significant, however, is, the night is that the night-roving spirits, whether the dead or the lady or ladies, don't feature at all in any of the earliest trial records or demonologies to feature the satanic stereotype of witchcraft. Instead, the presumed witches were usually expected to reach the Sabbath by rubbing a stick with the magical ointment and riding that, the ultimate origins of the motif of the witch's broomstick. This process is not found in any of the traditions of those who joined the lady or ladies. It's partly a new departure and partly a transference of the very old Mediterranean idea that witches would rub their bodies with ointment and transform themselves often into animals, especially night birds, to rove abroad at night. Where roving nocturnal spirits appear in witch trial records, it's only in places, above all Ginsberg's own North Italy, where a belief in them got caught up in the stereotype of the Sabbath. They do not seem to have formed that stereotype themselves. So perhaps it's time to suggest a new definition of the wild hunt for future encyclopedias or dictionaries of the occult. The wild hunt is a modern legendary construction originally made by the folklorist Jakob Grimm. He did so by conflating different pieces of modern German folklore with medieval and early modern records. In the process, he confused two genuine but distinct medieval beliefs in nocturnal processions of the penitential human dead and in night flights or rides of spirits often led by a superhuman female figure, which living humans, especially women, were often thought to join. The former seems a creation of the 12th century. 
while the latter, where it may, while it may derive from ancient pagan beliefs, cannot be proved to do so. Neither played a significant part in the development of the witches' Sabbath, although that of the roaming spirits, with their female leader, got caught up in trials for witchcraft in a few regions. Now, why do I suggest that this revisionist definition might be a very exciting one and open up other fields for exploration, especially by medievalists? Well, if the wild hunt, as defined, indeed in its modern form invented, by Grimm, had been as he described it, and simply a persistence of ancient pagan tradition into medieval lore and then into folklore, then it is simply that. It's a hangover from the remote past. But if, as I've suggested, whether or not the tradition of the lady is rooted in ancient pagan belief, and that seems now unproven and unprovable, the form which it took in the Middle Ages was actually a new one. And it's one which you can see spreading in popularity across Europe over the centuries between the early and high medieval periods. And this is a tradition which is not founded in learned law, nor is it a byproduct of Christianity, nor does it seem to have any elite believers. It's something generated within the common people and developed by them as a counterculture for themselves of astonishing vitality and longevity which colonises a large area. And this is something really exciting to observe. What we call these traditions, I'm not sure. I don't think you can describe the penitential dead as pagan. It does seem to derive from Christian concerns with purgatory and the fate of the soul, even though it does get popularised. But to describe the hosts of the lady as Christian seems particularly pointless, uh, unless they're rooted originally in the legend of a female saint or a group of them, which seems unlikely. There's no Christian contact at all. And so what we seem to have here is a non-Christian tradition developed by medieval commoners and certainly spread over a large area by them and sustained by them, which persists into modern folklore in regional traditions. And this requires a new terminology in which the old polarities of pagan and Christian now seem to be inadequate. So if I've managed this afternoon to open up the field rather than close it down, then that would be my most devout hope for a society of such longevity itself, which has attracted such popular as well as learned support, and has such a capacity to reach the disciplines and the parts of disciplines which mainstream scholarship frequently cannot reach. That is why it's been an honour and a pleasure to survive the city's transport system. <laughs> and to you tonight. I am extremely grateful to Ronald for giving me permission to release this talk on the podcast for everyone to listen to. Ronald's books are easy to find online and I would encourage you to read any of them if you have an interest in pagan folklore and beliefs. 
If you support the podcast on Patreon at any level, or want to sign up to do so, you'll be able to listen to the question and answer session that followed this talk over on our Patreon page, where Ronald goes into some more detail on some of the points given in the talk. www.patreon.com slash thefolklorepodcast is the address for that. In the next normal episode of the podcast, I'll be chatting to buildings archaeologist James Wright about the superstitious beliefs associated with marking dwellings and other buildings for protection. That episode had to be moved from this slot due to timing issues, but will be up next. In the meantime, our folk horror adventure Solemn Vale continues as bonus content in between. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, and see you next time.